0: We're going to turn to Hosea um, for the very last time. Well, the last time um, in this way. We're going to continue um, in the coming weeks to take the themes that we've seen and unpack them a bit more in terms of how we relate to one another. But for for the last time, um, working through the book, and we're going to turn to Hosea chapter 14, the last chapter. And we, we need to cover chapters 12, 13, and 14, but we're going to focus on chapter 14. We're going to read that chapter. And then we're going to dip back into chapters 12 and 13 to see what's happened. So let me just, for the last time, remind you how this book works. Okay, let's keep remembering. I want us to go away from this book with some sense of what God is saying to us as his people. Remember, this is a book that starts with that vivid story of Hosea and Goma. That is a picture of God and his people, the faithful God and his unfaithful people. The God who is faithful because of his covenant promises. The God who will not break his promises, even though his people have committed adultery against him. That was chapters 1 to 3. That's the big story, the image of the husband and his bride. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we saw, Here, O Israel, I have a charge to bring against you. And God charged his people with this idolatry, this spiritual, spiritual adultery that they had committed against him. And in chapter 6, it looked as if the people were ready to come back. Come, let us return to the Lord, chapter 6. Let's go back to God. Let's turn back to God. But the trouble was it wasn't complete. It, it wasn't genuine. It felt like that might be the end of the book. It felt like that might be the end of Hosea's sermon. But no, because God says to his people, Oh Israel, your, your love is like the morning mist. It's like the early dew that, that disappears. disappears so fickle, hearts like a burning oven that burn and smolder for sin, not for God. So we saw this big problem. We saw the terrible judgment that God will bring on his people because of their idolatry. And it looked like all was lost until then we saw the beauty of chapter 11. Do you remember the beauty of chapter 11? As God paints a portrait for us, says, this is who I truly am. This is what I'm like. As God thinks of handing his people over, he says, I'm going to judge you. And he says, but how can I give you up? All of my compassion is aroused. My love for you. I I can't give you up, Israel. I love you. It was the turning point, the compassion of God. That was chapter 11. And that brings us to where we're at today. So let me read chapter 14, and then we're going to explore these chapters together um, to understand God's word to us, his people. So Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord." Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say, "Our oh God, to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish Like the corn, they will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Well, here is God's great call. Here is the big build-up of Hosea. This is where it's all been heading. This is God's message. Return to me. Return to the Lord your God. If you wanted to sum up what it means to be a Christian, if you wanted to, a, kind of a one-sentence definition of what a Christian is, you couldn't do much worse than this. A Christian is someone... No, you couldn't do much better. Oh man, that was confusing. Anyway, it doesn't matter. This is good. <laughs> a Christian is someone who has returned to God. That's what it means to be a Christian. We get all mixed up, I think, in our heads. We think being a Christian is about going to church, or we think being a Christian is about keeping some rules, or we think being a Christian is about wearing certain clothes or being part of a certain culture. No, a Christian at its most basic and simple level is a Christian is someone who has returned to God. There has been a decisive change. There's been a moment when the heart has turned To God. Do you know when Jesus first came onto the scene in the the Gospels, his first recorded words in Mark's Gospel, his his message to the world was, The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's what it means. Repent means to turn to God. And so a Christian is someone who has returned to God. But it's also true to say that a Christian is someone who is returning to God. You see, there is a one-off decisive moment when you go from being turned away from God to turning to him. It's a one-off event. It's a moment. But as you go on in life as a Christian, what you discover is that We keep turning away. We keep wandering away from God. And actually life becomes a series of returnings to God. And that is what God is calling upon his people here. Return, O Israel. So it may be that you're watching this and you say, well, I've never turned to God. Well, perhaps this is the afternoon. This is the moment when God is going to call you to decisively return to him. Or it may be that you're sitting here saying, well, I have returned to God, but I still find my heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the Lord I love. Perhaps that's still your experience. You think back over this last week and you think, even this last week I've wandered off. And this afternoon, God's call to you is return to me. And all we're going to do very simply is we're going to take the idea of returning. And we're going to see three things. What are we returning from? How are we returning? And what are we returning to? Returning from, returning by, returning to. That's all we're going to see. And We're going to work through those three things so that we understand what it means to be one of God's people, one of his returning people. So what are we returning from? And this is where we're going to dip back into chapters 12 and 13. And I want to sum up chapters 12 and 13 as complacent danger. That's what we're returning from. You see, as God looks at his people, he sees that they have become complacent. Go back to chapter 12, verse 1. Let me just quickly run through this so you can see um, some of the themes of what's happening here. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Ephraim, remember that's, Another word for Israel, that the northern part of God's people. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. So here is Ephraim chasing after the wind. That's a futile thing to do, right? If you spend your day chasing the wind, that's not been a productive day. It's slightly less productive than spending your day watching YouTube. It's that sort of level of productivity. Chasing the wind. Pointless. And yet here is Ephraim, and they're making political alliances with Assyria and with Egypt, and they think that this is what's going to keep them safe, and they're complacent in their political security. It's okay. Assyria, they're friends with us. Egypt, they're friends with us, and they're both quite powerful, so we're going to be okay. And so they feel proud. If you jump down to verse 7, it says, The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I'm very rich. I've become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. So do you hear the complacency? Yes, we've got our political alliances, and I've got my financial security. I think I'm okay. They're two of the most dangerous words in the English language. I'm okay. We're fine. You know how often when people say to you, How are you doing? You go, I think I'm okay. Yeah, we're fine. Do you need anything? No, no, we're fine. If you'd said to Israel in this day, How are you, Israel? They'd have gone, We're fine. In fact, perhaps even a little bit better than fine. I think we're doing pretty well. We've got these guys on our side, we've got money and bank. We're doing good. And not only that, if you jump down to chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It's said of these people, they offer human sacrifices, they kiss calf idols. So they're serious about religion. They've got religion. They've got their um, idols. They've got their sacrifices. They're serious about, uh, about their religion. So they've got their political alliances. They've got their material wealth, and they've got a bit of religion. How are you, Israel? Yeah, yeah, we're fine. We're doing really good, actually. Really good. But God doesn't see it that way. See, they're complacent, but they're in danger. And so what God does in these chapters is he gives them a humbling history lesson. Listen to what he does. Come back to chapter 12. He reminds them of one of their ancestors, a man called Jacob. So if you look at chapter 12, verse 2, The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. See, Jacob is one of their ancestors. So it basically goes with this. Abraham, he was a big deal, and he had a son called Isaac, um, who was the child of promise, the one that God promised through Isaac, all the nations would be blessed. And then Isaac had a son called Jacob. And then Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Okay, so here is the founding father of Israel, who then had 12. Sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. This is Jacob, right? He's a big deal. And God says to them, you feel so complacent. You feel so proud and so strong, Israel. But let me remind you of Jacob. The name Jacob literally means deceiver. He grasps. That's where you came from, Israel. So it says in verse 3, In the womb he grasped his brother's heel, so he was a twin. He had a twin brother called Esau. Esau came up first, but Jacob grabbed his heel and came out kind of grabbing after. And that would be the story of his life. He'd be constantly deceiving and conning and grabbing. That's your history. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from, Israel, you who feel so proud. As a grown man, he struggled with God. He had an amazing encounter, this man Jacob. This history lesson goes on. He had an encounter where God humbled him. He struggled with God himself. And from that day on, he walked with a limp to remind him of his weakness. And it was only there, once he had been humbled, that he then wept and begged for God's favor. And it was there that he experienced God. Remember your history, Israel. Remember where you came from. If you jump on to verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9, God goes on with this history. He says, I've been the Lord your God ever since you came up out of Egypt. I remember when you were a tiny little nation, slaves in Egypt. I remember when you lived in tents. I remember it, Israel. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your history because you think you're so Fine. In verse twelve, he, remembers them, he reminds them that Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife and to pay for her, he tended sheep. It's a random little verse. Well, what's that about? Why did God say that? Well, he says, you know, you think you're so great, but your ancestor Jacob, he had to go off and he had to serve for fourteen years. Seven years, then another seven years to get wives. Okay? You are not impressive. You're not all that you think you are, Israel. And in fact, all that you have actually comes from God. It is God who rescued you. If you jump over to chapter thirteen, verse four, it becomes even clearer. But I've been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You should acknowledge no God but me, no saviour except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. And then they forgot me. You see, this is what happens if you forget your history. You become proud. You become complacent. You can hear the kind of pain in God's voice, right? I cared for you. I fed you. I satisfied you and you forgot me. Do you know, I think we're very much in danger of being like Israel and forgetting our history. Forgetting who we are. It's so easy when things begin to go well. It's so easy when things are successful. It's so easy when we have good things in our lives to become proud and complacent. So easy to follow that same path. God feeds us. We become satisfied. We become proud. We forget him. Have you ever seen that happen in your life? How success breeds complacency, breeds forgetfulness. And what tends to happen with history is that we rewrite history so that it tells the story we want it to tell that reflects well on us. You see, history is written by the winners, right? History is written by those who succeed, and therefore it always reflects well. And to airbrush history and to forget what we once were is devastating. Devastating. By the time you get to the New Testament, you get similar sorts of things. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's often saying to them, remember what you were. Not many of you were impressive by worldly standards. Not many of you were rich or educated or noble birth. Not many of you were kind of awesome in the world's eyes. In fact, many of you were deeply entrenched in sin, but you've been saved, you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. It was God who rescued you out of sin. It was God who set you free. It was God who gave you all the things that you enjoy. But is it possible that we have become complacent? Is it possible that we become proud, that we begin to think, look what I've done. Is it possible that we begin to act as if we've done this? And that we forget God. You see, that is what we need to return from. We need to return from self reliant complacency. It's okay, we've got our friends. Our powerful friends, they'll sort us out. We've got our material wealth in the bank. That that will sort us out. Don't you worry. We've got some religion. Yeah, we're religious. We do our religious stuff. God says, but your hearts are proud. You've forgotten me. This is what God is calling them to return from. But why does it matter? Why does it matter so much if they've forgotten God? Who cares? Well, chapters 12 and 13 say it's not just you've forgotten God. That places you in huge danger. You see, you need to return not just from complacency, but from complacent danger. You don't see the danger you're in. And so God warns his people. And he says, because you have forgotten me. Look at chapter um, 13, verse 7. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? In my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up, his sins are kept on record. Do you see it? God says, your pride and your complacency and your self-reliance are storing up for you destruction. They will bring upon you death. You see, you cannot just ignore the God who made you. You cannot just ignore the God who gives you all good things and think that it will be okay. No, death is coming. And so we are called to return from the place of complacency and danger and death. That's what we're being called to turn from. How are you, Israel? How are you doing? We're fine. We're all right. But they're not. And it may be that you are someone who says, actually, my life's going fine at the moment. I don't really see any need for God. Maybe you've had conversations like that. I know I have. I've had conversations with, me, with people who've said, but my life's great. Why would I need God? This kind of self-reliant thing is going well for me. I've got everything I need. I, I, I've got good friends. I've got money in the bank. Yeah, fine, a bit of religion if you want. Why would I need God? Well, you need God because of death. And then you get this strange verse in chapter 13, verse 14. If you've got a Bible, have a look at it. Chapter 13, verse 14. God has been saying all this, death is coming, and then suddenly he says, verse 14, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion. (laughs) What's going on? And we read that and we go, that sounds like a terrific promise, doesn't it? I'm not so sure that's how they would have first heard that verse. See, in this warning of death and destruction that is coming, I think that verse is slightly more ominous than it sounds to us. If you're reading in the ESV, the English Standard Version, it translates that verse slightly differently because it's difficult to translate. Listen to how the ESV translates it and see if you can hear it. It sounds slightly more ominous than wonderful. The ESV says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. It sounds much less sure. You see, will God redeem his people from death? Will he bring, or is he calling death? Death, bring on your sting. Death, bring on your plagues upon my people. Where are are you, death? Bring on your plagues. My people have rebelled against me. There is danger. There is danger. And the people are complacent in their danger. Now, we're coming back to that verse you won't be surprised to know. But for now, I want you to see the complacent danger that people are in. That is what we're being called to return from. Return, O Israel. Return, because you're not okay. You are not fine. Even if you feel like everything's going fine, you're not. You've forgotten the God who made you. You've forgotten the God who's given you all this stuff. And death is coming. God's judgment is coming. But we need to to, to move on Um, because we've seen what we need to return from. Complacent danger, self-reliant pride. But how? How do we return to God? Well, God tells us in chapter 14. God says, return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and say to the Lord and return to the Lord. You come back to God with honest words. It's that simple. There's not some big complicated ritual that you have to go through. There's not some massive sacrifice you have to offer. There's not some probationary period that you have to go through. There's not some task that you have to fulfill. You just bring words. But what What words do we need to bring? God tells you. He even tells you the words you need. God is so kind. He so wants you to return. He doesn't want you to be in the place of danger and death. He wants you to return. He makes it so simple. He says, return to me with words, and these are the words that you need. You know, sometimes, um, if you've ever been in church, um, you may have heard a preacher say, look, if you want to turn to God now, here's a prayer that you could pray. That's what God's doing here. If any of you today want to return to God, here is a prayer that God says, why don't you pray this? Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the Father, let find compassion. You see it? They're honest words. They're honest words that admit our own failure. You might remember back in chapter 6, there was a partial sort of, oh, come, let's return to the Lord. But there was no honesty. There was no authenticity in the heart. Here in chapter 14, God is saying, this is how you come back to me. You come back with honest words. You don't hide. You don't cover up. You don't pretend. You just come and you be honest about how you failed. You offer the fruit of your lips. That is, as you speak to God, it's a sacrifice to him. It's it's an act of worship that he accepts. That's what he wants from you. And notice how specific it is. They specifically say, Assyria cannot save us. Oh, hang on, they were the people that I was trusting in. We will not mount war horses. Ah, oh, that was our confidence in our own material strength. We will never say again, our gods, to what our own hands have made. That was their religion. They specifically name the things that they trusted in. They say, God, we are turning to you. We're turning away from Assyria, and we're turning to you. We're turning away from our material possessions, and we're turning to you. We're turning away from our man-made religion, and we're turning to you. This is no vague, oh God, we're sorry. Uh, Yeah, we're sorry for bad stuff. Isn't it easy to, to be quite bland in our confession? Dear God, sorry for all the bad things I've done. Do you even know what those things are? You see, when you return to God, you come and you specifically tell him, this is what I am turning from. What is it that you are living for? What is it that you have placed your confidence in? What is it that you find your joy in? What is it that makes you feel secure? What is it you invest your life in? God says, will you turn? Turn to me. That's how you first turn to God. If you've never done it, that's how you first turn to him. But it's also how you turn to him over and over again. Every day, we will need to return to God. Because every day we will be tempted to wander away from him, to put our confidence again in what our hands have made, to put our confidence again in what we can achieve, to put our confidence again in what we can build. And every day we need to say to God, I turn from that, I come back to you. Because it's only in you that the fatherless find compassion. That's a link right back to Hosea chapter 1. When one of Hosea's children was called um, not my people. Not loved was another of his children. And here, suddenly as you return to God, you say, you are my children. You are my people. Here is the God of love. This is what it means to return. But you come back with honest words. How much does confession play a part in your life? How much does honesty before God play a part in your life? I think there might be two reasons why we, um, we don't, we're not very good at being honest before God. One, because we don't like to admit we've got things wrong. We don't like to be exposed and so we, we, we tend to hide and we, we like to keep it vague because then we can sort of... Um, Get away with it. But I wonder if the second reason is because we don't even see where we've gone wrong sometimes. And we need to pray that God would help us to see the ways that we turn to our own self-confident, self-reliant lives. we have to be honest before god there's no point play acting and we've seen terrible stories in christian in the kind of christian news in recent days of people who've tried to put on an act who've tried to play a part who've tried to hide their sin and make out that there's something they're not god is not fooled he's not fooled He's not fooled when we pretend to be something we're not. He's not impressed by our behavior. He's not impressed by our performance and our success and all the things that we. He's not impressed by your bank balance. He's not impressed. Rather, he wants you to return to him with honesty, with humility, with integrity that says, I've sinned, I've fallen. but I want to come home. So come back to him with honest words. And what are you returning to? As you return from that place of death, that place of danger, that place of complacency, as you return with these honest words, as you come back to God speaking, what do you turn to? Oh, this is just beautiful. Look at verse four. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. You're coming back to fruitful life. You're coming back to the God who loves freely. The God who will heal you, restore you. Look at the imagery of life. If there was an imagery of death, if in, in chapters 12 and 13 there's the language of the east wind and crops that fail and famine and death in chapters 12 and 13. In chapter 14, it's just bursting with life. It's pulsating with life. If you've ever seen the film Lion King, sorry, it's that moment when Simba, the true king, comes back and the place that's full of skulls and bones and desert and death. There's just one scene when it rains and suddenly there's grass and there's life because when the true king returns, Death is turned to life. And that's the point in chapter 14. Just listen to it. I'll be like the dew to Israel who will blossom like a lily, like a seed of Lebanon. He'll send down roots. His young shoots will grow. There's just life. It's flourishing. It's beautiful. It's green and pulsating with life. His splendor will be like an olive tree. People again in his shade. You will enjoy the fruitfulness of being God's people. You will enjoy being connected again to the God of life. When you were away from God, you were in a place of death, but now you're back in the place of life. This is what God says He will do. This is why you return to Him. Your fruitfulness comes from me. You can't go it alone if you want to be fruitful, if you want to know life and life in all its pulsating fullness, you have to return to God. This is the difference between a rose that's been cut and placed in a vase and a rose that's growing on a bush. The rose that looks great cut the rose that's cut and placed in the vase, it looks beautiful and it's proud and it's complacent. It says, Look at me, I'm so beautiful. I'm such a beautiful rose. Aren't I awesome? But the trouble is, it's dying. It's only heading in one direction. But the rose that's still connected to the bush is a rose that's still alive. And even if the petals fade and even if the flower dies, the bush still lives. There's life. And we settle for being cut flowers in a vase, all bunched together, shining with our little achievements and desperately trying to make the most of what we can. But all the time we know we've been cut. And therefore death will win. And one day our bodies will wither and like a rose we will fade and we will die And like a rose, we will be thrown away. Death wins. But if you return to God, then there is life because you become connected to the God of life. And you may say, well, how on earth does God give you life? Well, that's why Jesus came. That's what the whole message of the Bible is about. That's why Hosea is not the end of the Bible story because the people couldn't return to God. We've seen that. that there needed something more radical to happen. And so what God was promising was that one would come. One would come who would deal with the very problem of death itself. Which is why I want to go back and want to finish with that verse in chapter 13 again. Chapter 13, verse 14. You see, that verse that I think was ominous to the first readers has become one of the most spectacular verses in the Bible. A verse that says, will I redeem them from death? Will I deliver this people from the power of the grave? becomes, I will. Because what has happened is that Jesus, in his coming into this world, he has taken death upon himself. Jesus at the cross was like a rose that was cut down, cut down from the life-giving source of his Father. And so Jesus suffered death itself. But as Jesus died, he paid the death that we deserve. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus reversed death. Jesus smashed the enemy of death, which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul takes that verse um, from Hosea. And in 1 Corinthians 15 we read this. This is why you must return to God. If you've never returned to him, you you have to do it now. And if you have returned to God, but you know that you've wandered away, you have to return to him. Because you don't get this anywhere else. This is the hope. The perishable has been clothed with the imperishable the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not the end. Death is not our destiny. For all who have returned to God, you are now connected to the fruitful one. Your fruitfulness comes from God. Your life now comes from God himself, which means that death cannot hold you. Because you... You've got to get this. This is massive. I mean, have a look at your hand. Think about your very life right now. It is pulsating, not just with a natural human life, but with the very life of God himself, which means that when you physically die, the life of God will raise you forever. Death is not the end. And so you return from being a cut rose in a vase that faffs around for a few years and gets as much glory as you can and perhaps for many years says, I'm fine. And if you talk to the rose in the vase and you say, Rose, how are you? The rose will say, I'm fine, thanks. But it's dying. And that is the fate of all those who have gone away from God. And so God says, return, return to me. Come with honest words. Come and speak about your sin. Tell me what you've done wrong. Come to me. And as you come to me, you are then connected to the God of life. The God who so loved you that he sent his son to die for you. The God who so loved you that he raised his son from death so that you could have life forever. It doesn't get better than this. So there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. The door has been opened and all may come in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for this simple, simple reality that you call us to return. That you're not a God who writes people off. You're a God who calls people back. And this afternoon, whoever we are and whatever we've done and wherever we've run and however far we've gone, you call us to return to you. So Lord, we want to return. Right now, we want to return from that place of self-reliance, complacent danger. We want to come with honest words And we want to come to the fruitful life that you have for us. Lord, we praise you. We praise you that we have victory in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.